0: All right, so we are continuing in our series in Revelation this morning. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to where we left off last week, Revelation chapter 15. Now, like a lot of Revelation, this chapter deals with the theme of God's wrath. And I know that that can be a difficult topic. I'll be honest, it's not really my favorite topic to talk about. Uh, The Bible tells us that God is love, but then we come across some passages that describe God's wrath, and that can seem in conflict with the idea that God is love, that he's merciful and graceful and forgiving. But I want us to recognize that there is a kind of wrath that is motivated by love. Uh, If you are a parent and you discover that your child has been abused by someone, it is appropriate for you to have a response of wrath. In fact, if you didn't have a response of wrath, I would be concerned. Uh, the appropriate response is to seek justice for your child and to purge the abuser out of your child's life. Right? The only way that you wouldn't have that reaction is if you were indifferent to your child's suffering, if you didn't actually love your child. So there is a kind of wrath that is motivated by love. If you have a love for truth, then you are going to feel wrath when you hear lies. If you have a love for justice, then you are going to feel wrath when you witness injustice. And so I want us to think of God's wrath first and foremost in this way. It is a wrath that is motivated by love. The wrath is not the opposite of love, but it is, in a sense, the byproduct of God's love. It's a byproduct of God's love for humanity, and it's also a byproduct of God's love for his entire creation. Uh, God, long ago, embarked on this creation project, and his heart is in that project. Uh, God wants a world of perfect peace, of perfect shalom, um, where human beings are freely choosing to function as his representatives, where human beings freely choose to represent his character and his goodness to the world around them. And so God feels wrath towards the forces that oppose that, that oppose his creation project, whether they are angelic or human. So when you think about God's wrath, start there, byproduct of love. Now this passage that we're going to look at today, Revelation 15, it, uh, it teaches us a few more things about God's wrath, two things that stand out to me, and there are two things that we might not ordinarily think about when we think of the wrath of God. So let's look at the passage. And then we'll uh, talk about what those things are. Uh, First, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to look at your word together. And we ask that you would just focus our attention on you and on the scriptures. Lord, give us insight. Um, Lord, may your spirit impress on our hearts whatever it is that you want us to remember and take away from this time. Help us to attend to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with seven plagues, seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God. ...and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels." were completed. Alright, hopefully you remember, uh, I've talked about this before, that Revelation contains more references and allusions to the Old Testament than probably any other New Testament book. In fact, one scholar, Gregory Beale, uh, believes that about two-thirds of the verses in Revelation make a reference or an allusion to something in the Old Testament. and. These verses that we looked at, chapter 15, are full of those kinds of allusions. And one of the Old Testament events that is being referred to here, that's being remembered, is the Exodus. Uh, Hopefully you remember the story of the Exodus. If you've seen that old animated film, The Prince of Egypt, I'm I'm sure you remember it. Uh, The Israelites were in slavery in Egypt for about 400 years. And during that time, they were mistreated, they were abused, and they cried out to God for deliverance. And so God sent Moses to lead them out of Egypt, to exit them, hence that name Exodus, uh, out of this slavery. And so God uh, sent plagues on Egypt, and these plagues came, and finally the Pharaoh relented and said, Okay, you can go. But as soon as the Israelites left, he then sent out uh, people to pursue the Israelites and overtake them and attack them. And so the, uh, the whole story culminates with the Israelites on the shore of a large body of water, the Red Sea. And the Israelites are, or excuse me, the Egyptians are pursuing them. And then God miraculously intervenes and he splits the sea so that dry land appears and the Israelites are able to walk through the Red Sea. And then when the Egyptians continue to pursue behind them, the water comes back on them and destroys them. And then after that happens, the Israelites stand on the shore of the sea and they sing this song of celebration. This song led by Moses that declares that there is no one like Yahweh. There is no one like their Lord. And so notice in this vision in Revelation that we just looked at, there's all kinds of allusions to that Exodus story, right? John sees plagues, and uh, just like Egypt was was struck with plagues, right? And, And then he sees a victorious people, and that victorious people is what? They're standing on the shore of the sea, and they are singing The Song of Moses even specifically describes it as the Song of Moses. And this song celebrates that God is just and good and that there's nobody else like him. And so what this vision is saying is that there is a greater exodus that is happening or that is coming in the future than the one that came from Moses. It's like that exodus in the past was just a foreshadowing of this greater exodus that God had in mind. And this is an exodus that comes not through Moses, but through Jesus. Uh, notice that the song that the victorious saints sing, it's not just the song of Moses, right? It's described also as the song of the Lamb, the song of Jesus. So this is an exodus, of victory that is led by Jesus, that happens through him. Now, there's all these parallels between the original exodus and this exodus that is led by the Lamb. But there's also a significant difference. And the difference should stand out to us. Uh, If you go back and look at the Song of Moses that is recorded in in Exodus, I'm not actually going to go back and bring up the text. But if you go back and look at it, you'll see that Moses talks a lot about how now all the nations are going to be terrified when they hear about what God did to the Egyptians. And that's primarily what he says at the end. The nations are going to be terrified. The nations are going to be terrified. But in this vision, the Song of the Lamb is a little bit different. The Song of the Lamb says, all nations will come and worship before you. All nations will come and worship before you. So this new exodus that Jesus is leading doesn't simply make other nations afraid. I mean, I think it does that, but it's not just that, right? It also leads the nations to come to the true God and to worship Him. Now, remember, I said that this passage teaches us two things about God's wrath that we don't ordinarily think of when we think of God's wrath. And so this brings us to the first one, which is this. God's wrath can lead people to turn to Him. God's wrath can lead people to turn to Him. Look at verse 4 again. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In other words, all nations will come and worship before you. Why? Because your righteous acts have been revealed. Some translations put it as, your manifestations of justice have been revealed. Now... That leads to the question, okay, what are God's righteous acts that are being referred to? What are his manifestations of justice? Well, if you think of the verse in the context of the vision that we just looked at, the righteous acts are what? They're the plagues. The plagues. The expressions of God's wrath. And what these victorious saints seem to be saying, as far as I can tell, is that God, showing his judgment has power to lead people from all the nations to come and worship him. Now you might ask, well, why would that be? Well, think of it this way. Imagine if a perfect judge came to a city. And we all know every city's got problems. Uh, Imagine if that judge then heard every trial, every case, uh, in the city. You know, every, every grievance, uh, every accusation, every injustice. Uh, he heard ever, about every assault, about every theft, uh, every time someone was cheated out of what was rightfully theirs. And then imagine that this perfect judge ruled with perfect justice in every case. That he punished those who deserved to be punished, uh, that he settled accounts, that he showed mercy where it was appropriate to show mercy, that he operated with perfect judgment, that he showed grace where, when it was appropriate to show grace, and that he showed wrath when it was appropriate to show wrath. If that happened, I guarantee you that not everybody, but many, many people would celebrate. Many, many people would be in awe of the wisdom of that judge, and they would praise that judge. Proverbs 11.10 says, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. When justice is done, sometimes when wrath is expressed, a lot of people celebrate, and they celebrate for good reason. And when God, the perfect judge, acts righteously, a lot of people will see the beauty of that. And will celebrate people from all the nations. So let's think of God's wrath not just as something that punishes evil, but as something that can inspire celebration, right? Something that inspires worship. Because when justice is done, that is a good thing. And many people recognize that. All right, now after this vision of the Exodus, we get another vision, this time of a temple in heaven. And the theme is the same, this theme of the seven plagues and God's wrath, right? Now, we we might be inclined to think of both of these visions, visions of the exodus and vision of the temple as this chronological sequence. But I don't really think of it that way. I think of the vision of the exodus as looking at God's wrath from one angle, the angle of the celebration that it produces, And then I think of this next vision of the temple as looking at God's wrath from another angle. This is saying something else about God's wrath. So what is it saying? Well, let's look at it again, okay? Um, After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever, and the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, what is the significance of this? What is this telling us about the wrath of God? Well, we have to remember that in the Old Testament, there were particular places where God's presence dwelt. Okay, now, there was this idea throughout the Old Testament that God is present everywhere. The Psalms declare that the, the whole creation is filled with his glory. But at the same time, there was this idea that God was uniquely and powerfully present in certain places. Uh, first in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple. And his, his presence in these places was so, so powerful that it was dangerous for people to get too close. So the Jews believed that God dwelled in a special way in the temple, and so they would come to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And within the temple, uh, there was something called the inner court. And then within the inner court, there was what was called the holy place. And then within the holy place, behind a very thick curtain, was the holy of holies. And that was where God's presence dwelt in such a powerful way that only one person was able to go in there once a year. Um, Because if anyone else went in there, it would just be overwhelming, uh, and you would die. So keep that in mind, okay, when we think of this vision of, of the temple. Now, in this vision, we have these angels, and they are coming out of where? Basically, they're coming out of the most holy place, the place where God's presence dwells. And we're told that no one can enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. In other words, no one can come in until the wrath of God is expressed and completed. Okay. So this brings me to the second thing that I believe this passage shows us about the wrath of God, something that we don't ordinarily think about, which is that the wrath of God opens the way to the most holy place. The wrath of God opens the way to the most holy place. Now what do I mean by that? If God never executes his wrath over sin and evil, if he never executes judgment, then there is forever a distance between us and God. Access to the most holy place is blocked. And if we try to get in there, if we try to get into the most holy place, we perish. But if God's wrath against sin and evil is expressed, if it's satisfied, then access to the most holy place is opened. Now, I realize this might be confusing. Uh, One way of thinking about it is this. In order for us to experience the deepest longing of our hearts, which the deepest longing of our hearts, whether we realize it or not, is union, intimacy with our Creator... In order for us to experience that, sin and evil have to be destroyed. They have to be. The world has to be fixed. Things have to be made right. If God's wrath never takes care of sin and evil, then there is no way into that most holy place. There's no way to stand face-to-face before our Creator and live. Now, I realize, okay, this really creates a problem, right? Because on the one hand, we need God's wrath to open access into the most holy place, right? But on the other hand, we have evil in us, so if God's wrath is expressed, well, then that could destroy us, right? And then there's no us to even go into the most holy place, right? So, the question becomes this. Is there a way for God's wrath to destroy sin and evil without destroying us? Is there a way for God's wrath to destroy sin and evil without destroying us? And the good news is that the answer is that there is a way. And it happened already. And it happened at the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the plagues of God's wrath upon himself. There's this really fascinating detail uh, in the Gospel of Mark that's easy to miss. It describes Jesus' crucifixion, and then it says in chapter 15, verse 37, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the moment when Jesus died, that curtain that separated the most holy place was torn. Now, that's miraculous just in a physical sense, because that curtain would have been very thick, very strong. It's not just going to suddenly tear on its own. But what's even more miraculous is what that tearing meant, what it represented. Because it meant that the way to the most holy place, the way to our heart's longing, the way to intimacy with God, had been opened. Now again, okay, this vision in Revelation tells us that the way to the most holy place cannot be opened unless God's wrath has been expressed and completed. Okay? And that is exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross. The wrath of God against sin and evil was expressed, and then Jesus absorbed it. He absorbed it so that the way to the most holy place could be opened so that sin and evil could be destroyed without destroying us. Now you might be thinking, wait, how does this work? What? This is confusing. How can Jesus absorb God's wrath? Does that even make sense? I mean, Jesus didn't do anything wrong, right? So how could God possibly satisfy his wrath by punishing Jesus. This is something I've wondered about. It just feels like it doesn't make sense, right? It seems like it just exaggerates the injustice of the world to punish somebody who is innocent. It's confusing. Well, the answer to that question lies in recognizing that Jesus is God. You've got to remember that, okay? The Bible tells us that to look at Jesus is to look at God himself. So Jesus isn't just some really great guy who was punished in our place. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus on the cross is God Himself absorbing God's wrath. Now you might still be wondering, okay, well how does that work? How can God absorb His own wrath? Well think about it this way. Sometimes we do something like that ourselves. If you have ever been truly wronged by somebody now I'm not just talking about, you know, someone steps on your foot, you know, "Oh, I'm sorry, oh, that's okay." I'm saying, if you have ever truly been wronged by somebody, deeply wronged by them, and then you forgive them, you are absorbing your wrath yourself, right? And that could be extremely painful. It can feel like torture. It hurts. Now, think of how difficult that is for you. Imagine what it is like for a perfectly holy God. A God who loves justice and goodness and righteousness more than you ever will. The cross shows us two things. Well, it shows us a lot of things, but these are the two main things that it shows us. One, it shows us how seriously God takes sin. It shows us that God has wrath for sin. God knows that injustice demands punishment. God knows that sin incurs a debt that has to be paid. You know, to pretend otherwise, to pretend like, ah, none of that matters, would be to to deny the very reality of good and evil, to pretend that there's not even such thing, as right and wrong. A holy God can't do that. Just as when somebody truly wrongs you, you can't just be like, eh, it doesn't matter, right? Forgiving hurts. Forgiving costs you something. You have to absorb that wrath. So the cross shows us how seriously God takes sin. But it shows us something else. It also shows us how much God loves us. Because God would rather absorb the debt of our sin and take the punishment upon himself than destroy us. I always like to say the cross shows that God is so much more interested in saving you than in condemning you. So when we read this vision, this vision of of the temple, and these seven angels coming out of it and releasing plagues, Here's what I want us to think. Jesus has already opened the way to the most holy place. He did that when he died on the cross. He took the plagues of God's wrath upon himself. He absorbed it. So if we know Jesus, if we are trusting in him and following him, we should be able to feel confident confident that those plagues are not for us. We don't stand under God's wrath, we're safe. But if we haven't received God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus, then we shouldn't be so confident that we don't have to worry about this wrath, about these plagues. There's two options, either Jesus pays for our sins, or we do. And through the cross, God has made it clear he would much rather pay for our sins, then have us pay for them. That's how much he loves us. But we have to choose to receive this gift that he's offering. And one of the ways that we do that is by turning away from the beast, turning away from that spirit of empire, turning away from living as if the most important things in life, there's nothing more important than money and power, and worldly success, and turning away from the way of the beast and turning towards the way of the Lamb, turning towards Christ, which values love, mercy, forgiveness, justice. If you have never made that decision to say, Lord, I want to accept your forgiveness. I want to turn away from evil and turn toward you. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you, talk to God And and tell him that that's what you want to do. He is listening. He will hear you. He will welcome you in. And he will lead you into the most holy place. Starting now and then on into eternity. Let's pray. Lord, if there's anyone who is watching right now who... Has not trusted in you for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, I pray right now that you would you'd speak to them, that you would make your presence and your love and your power clear to them, and I pray that they might turn to you. And if that's you, just tell the Lord Lord, I know that I have sinned, and I know that I contribute to the brokenness of the world, and I want to accept this offer of forgiveness through Jesus. I want to uh, recognize that you have opened the way to the most holy place, uh, that you have um, absorbed your wrath for my sin. And I, I, I receive that, I acknowledge it, and I want to enter into relationship with you. And Lord, for those of us who have already done that, Lord, I, I pray that we would find peace in knowing uh, that these, these plagues, this wrath, is, is not for us. And Lord, I pray that we would have courage uh, to represent you to the world around us, to be faithful to represent your love, your grace, your justice. Lord, we thank you for opening the way to the most holy place. In Jesus' name, amen.